0: You know, when I was first introduced to the Christian faith as a 15 or 16-year-old, I had no idea there was such a thing as a judgmental Christian, a bigoted Christian. Uh, I assumed all Christians were just like Jesus in the passage just read to us, Uh, In other words, I assumed all Christians were celebratory, um, happy to welcome to their table, sinner and saint alike, welcoming to all. And the reason I had this assumption was I really only knew one Christian. And it was this woman, Glenda Weldon, a volunteer teacher up uh, at my school Now, I know I have told you uh, about her before, maybe a couple of times, but last week at dinner, Jeff Mannion said, I really want you next week to retell the story of how you came to faith and that marvelous story of that teacher, Glenda Weldon. Um, I suspect he just wanted less of the nerdy history from me and more personal sharing. (laughs) Jeff and all that touchy-feely stuff. (laughs) But I'm, I'm, I'm happy to oblige because this was a remarkable woman. She came up once a week to volunteer at my school and she was very open about her Christian faith, though it was a state uh, government school. And she would answer all my smart aleck questions about Christianity. I would fire criticisms at her and she'd be funny back to me. And then she would host these amazing feasts at her home on Friday afternoons with hamburgers, milkshakes, and her world famous scones with cream and jam. And some of the scones are in the photo behind me. And my mates and I would turn up at her home on Friday afternoons looking for the free food. And we would eat that food and then she would bring out the Bible. And we used to joke that she was like a witch who had fed us so much we couldn't get up out of the couch. (laughs) And just at that weak moment, she would... But she didn't Bible bash us. She read us the Gospels. Friday afternoon after Friday afternoon after Friday afternoon. She knew that we knew nothing. I'd never been inside a church, nor my mates. So she just went with the main thing, Jesus, and fielded our questions. It was my doorway to the faith, the doorway of several of my mates, including Ben, who's also on the screen there, who also went into full-time ministry, having been raised in a home without any Christianity. This was the doorway for us, this remarkable celebratory, feasting woman. as She died six years ago, almost to the week, Um, and at her funeral, her family produced this lovely cookbook because she was such a foodie, as we say in Australia, like Epicurean, absolutely into feasting, that they made this cookbook, and uh, and they printed it and gave it to all, like, five or 600 people at the funeral, and in the middle was a double-page spread of her scone recipe, uh, sort of in honor of us, and you you might be able to see it says, Glenda's Salvation Scones. (laughs) (laughs) And every year on the anniversary of her her death, uh, we in the Dixon household make these scones according to her recipe, uh, and it's it's a delight. Anyway, Glenda put up with so much from us. Sometimes we turned up, 20 of us, at her home when she was expecting five or six. Sometimes we'd say we'd turn up, and we wouldn't, and she'd made hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. We turned up once at midnight drunk. (laughs) More about that escapade later. (laughs) We even stole from her. Not me personally, but one of my mates who went along Friday afternoon, pinched her DVD player, sold it for drug money. The next week, she hardly mentioned it. She made out like she just misplaced her DVD player. We knew, she knew we had taken it. And yet she still wanted us in her home. It was remarkable. And that's why I say in those days, I had no idea there were judgmental Christians, Christians who look down on you for your morality. I only learned that much later when I started going to a church and I met all the varieties of Christians that there are in the world. But in my entree to the faith, Glenda epitomized For me, one of the best bits of the good news about Jesus Jesus ate and drank with the sinners. And this narrative of Jesus at Levi's house is celebratory. And Levi, a tax collector, a sinner, invites all of his sinner buddies to celebrate and meet Jesus. And predictably, of course, the religious leaders are upset. Now, in history circles, not to turn this into a history lesson, which is unfortunately my instinct, this is known as the problem of Jesus' table fellowship. And literally, there are entire PhDs and academic volumes written on the subject of Jesus' table fellowship, his willingness to eat and drink with the sinners, and then really upset the religious leaders. His eagerness to eat with the sinners was remarkable historically. But forget the history. It's great news for us today. For the church, as it works out how do we interact with the wider society. It's great news for society, as it tries to work out what is genuine Christianity, instead of the marred and obscured versions. And it's great news for us individually, as each of us wrestles with the perennial problem of personal guilt. Well, our passage today is part B to last week's passage. The two passages are uh, geographically and thematically linked. Last week, we saw uh, Jesus at a home in Capernaum, that city by the lake, where Jesus makes the extraordinary claim to be able to forgive the sins of this paralyzed man who's let down through the roof into the middle of them all. Jesus declares his sins forgiven and the religious leaders right on cue are upset. Who is this who forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. He's blaspheming, they say. Well, our text takes us out of this house and just 100 meters down to the beach. That's the setting of our passage today where Jesus at Capernaum goes to the beach and there are fishing boats being pulled up, there are crowds flocking, and there are tax collectors right on the beach counting the fish and uh, doing the mathematics to work out how much duties must be paid on the fish. And this is where we pick up our narrative. Once again, Jesus went out Beside the lake. And a large crowd came to him and began, he began to teach them. And as he walked along the beach, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now think about this. No sooner has Jesus demonstrated his authority to forgive sins, up in the house with the paralyzed man. Then he is now down at the beach looking for more sinners to forgive, to embrace, to win over. And so he arrives at this tax collector's booth. What you need to imagine is a little mobile office that just sets up, probably with a little canopy, you know, so he doesn't get, you know, burnt. And he's there with his money bags. And his um, booklets to write out how much everyone owes. And Jesus walks straight up to this man, Levi. And probably to the shock of Levi, Jesus says, will you follow me? This is his signature call. It's not the first time people have heard Jesus say to people, follow me, So everyone is primed, when Jesus comes to Capernaum, to hear who will be next, who will get asked to follow the greatest teacher of our day. I bet they were not expecting it would be a tax collector. I think the tax collectors also did not expect that it would be one of their own because tax collectors had a terrible reputation. You no doubt know something of this. But tax collectors in the ancient world, unlike the very respectable white-collar tax collectors of our day. In the ancient world, tax collectors uh, collected money partly for the occupying Roman forces, or at least for the puppet leaders the Romans had put over the Jews, uh, like Herod Antipas. Taxes went to him. But they also collected duties on every piece of, you know, olive and fish and figs and oil everything had a duty attached to it and the thing is it was open to abuse the tax system a tax collector so long as he gave the authorities the amount agreed upon at the beginning of the year the tax collector was free to extract from you whatever he pleased that's how he made his own income and so you can imagine they had a reputation for being incredibly greedy It was a deserved reputation. There's actually a humorous inscription from the ancient world to a Sabinus, and uh, the inscription just simply says, "'To Sabinus, an honest tax collector.'" It was so remarkable to have an honest one, it actually went on his statue. An honest tax collector? I imagine people for years afterwards laughed as they went by. Jesus seems to go out of his way to eat with a tax collector and call the tax collector and his buddies to follow him. In verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. And his disciples, for there were many that followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, they didn't have the guts to ask him directly, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the Pharisees have a bit of a reputation here, they, they deserve a special mention. Uh, the Pharisees were a particularly conservative religious faction. And the peculiar thing about them is they wanted to separate themselves from everything impure. In fact, the word Pharisee probably comes from the Hebrew term separated. They wanted to be separate from all the impure things. And the cool thing is, we have some of the religious laws of the Pharisees still preserved to this day in a book called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, which is 1,100 pages long, there is a section about tax collectors. And I wanna read it to you so you get a sense of how outrageous it is that Jesus eats and drinks with him. Here we go. Concerning thieves who enter your house, only the place trodden by the feet of the thieves is unclean and they render unclean in those rooms the foods, the liquids, the clay utensils which are open, but the couches and the seats and the clay utensils which are sealed with a tight seal are clean. Concerning tax collectors who enter your house, the whole house is unclean. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. Uh, Tax collectors are worse than thieves, religiously. So when Jesus goes to the home of Levi, And all of his other tax collector and sinner buddies are there. Can you see what's happening? Jesus is making himself contaminated, at least according to the rules of the Pharisees, of that religious faction. So why did Jesus do this? It would be tempting just to say, oh, Jesus was a party animal and liked to eat and drink with everyone. But obviously more is going on than that. Surely this is another real life example of Jesus' power to forgive sins. See, sinners don't contaminate him, as the Pharisees thought, he cleanses them. It's the reverse. And not just the sympathetic sinners, like the paralyzed man up in the house that we looked at last week. You might look at a man like that and think, oh, well, he deserves forgiveness because he's had such a hard life. But actually here, Jesus is pursuing the openly corrupt and irreligious Levi and his buddies. This is really important to spot. Uh, Levi isn't a lowly outcast. Don't think of him like that. It's not like Jesus is the, uh, company uh, diversity and inclusion officer, you know, just wants to make sure everyone, including Levi, is feeling comfy. No. Levi's doing fine. Levi's got friends, lots of them, or at least acquaintances, and lots of people who want to be his friend. He's wealthy. He has petty control. It's not an outcast in that sense. The Pharisees are kind of rational to complain that Jesus would eat and drink with this man who is greedy, who is corrupt. Jesus isn't just being a liberal, progressive, lefty, inclusion fanatic. The point here is he is the savior of all. He loves everyone. He wants to remedy everyone, not just the sympathetic characters like the paralyzed man. He wants to go for the total jerks as well and tell them that they are loved by God and forgiveness can be theirs if they trust Him. And this, of course, is His point back to the Pharisees. The Pharisees have just sort of grumbled to Jesus' disciples, but Jesus overhears this and has a little lesson for them in verse 16, our 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus had a special mission. Not to those who already knew God and his mercy, the healthy, the righteous. No, Jesus had a special mission to those who didn't know God's love, who lived at a distance from God, who knew they disobeyed God. He had a mission to heal them spiritually. Whether sympathetic characters like the paralyzed man or unsympathetic characters like Levi. He is the divine doctor. He came to mend our souls back to our creator. He is searching for you and me to bring us back to God. This isn't simply open-mindedness. This is the work of the Savior, wanting to bring everyone to salvation. And according to this gospel, he will walk these shores for another year, searching out more sinners, offering them forgiveness. And then about a year later, he, he will go down to Jerusalem, where he'll be arrested, tried, beaten, and hung on a cross, And according to his own teaching, he was giving his own life on behalf of us. On behalf of the paralyzed man. On behalf of Levi and his friends. On behalf of you and me. You may see yourself here this morning as a kind of sympathetic character. Or you may see yourself as deeply problematic. Either way, Jesus came for you as the divine doctor to bring you back to God. For my podcast, I interviewed uh, an American academic called Bill McClay. He's professor of history at the University of Oklahoma. And he's written one of the most insightful essays I've, I've read in, you know, maybe the last five or ten years. It's called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And I know it doesn't sound very exciting, but it's a bit of a history of guilt. You think, oh, I don't want to write a history of guilt. No, 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 really. It's fantastic. Because he goes through how the Western world has tried to cope with the problem of guilt. Guilt is a perennial problem, but how has the West dealt with it, especially in recent times as Christianity has been sidelined? And he has some really interesting things to say. For example, he talks about the 19th century German atheist Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche said, because there's no God, there's no higher law above you, so there's no objective guilt. Guilt gone. And yet it persists. And then McClay talks about Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology. And Freud, also an atheist, tried to deal with subjective guilt, that is, the feelings of guilt that linger. Nietzsche got rid of objective guilt. There's no God, there's no law, there's no guilt. Freud tried to psychologize it and say, and yet we still feel guilty it's everywhere in our culture he said and so many of our anxieties freud reckoned were because of repressed guilt and he thought you could mend your guilt through psychotherapy and yet guilt persists and the most interesting thing about what mcclay says in this article is that as Christianity declines in the West and guilt persists, we don't have the tools anymore to cope with personal guilt. That at a cultural level, we're scrambling for coping mechanisms. And he lists three secular ways to cope with guilt. See if this rings true for you. He wrote this in an American context. But when I first read this, I was in Australia. And I thought it was bang on for Aussie culture, too. He says, one, we have an obsession with therapeutic measures. Counseling, self-help books, self-improvement podcasts, we're so obsessed with these because we think that will make us better people and that will get rid of guilt. Now, please let me be absolutely clear because my darling wife, Buff, last night picked me up on this after my message. She said, please make clear to people that there are inappropriate feelings of guilt that counsellors can help with. Yes, 100%. Don't take this as a criticism of the whole psychological method. I I think it is incredibly valuable. But as a culture, you cannot remove guilt simply through counselling if guilt is real. But anyway, Maclay then says, secondly, we have this growing severity in mob shaming does this ring true we find even worse sinners than ourselves in the public sphere and we are furious at them and, and there's something in our shaming of other people on Twitter or wherever uh, that makes us feel better about ourselves because they're worse than us but it's actually just guilt management and then Mcleay says thirdly there is a rush In our culture to identify with or as victims because if we're a victim we're the innocents and so we are either ourselves a victim or we're the friends of victims and therefore we're the righteous and that that is in part in a way a way of coping with the perennial problem of guilt now Maclay doesn't right from a Christian perspective. He doesn't offer a Christian solution. He just says, these are the trajectories of our culture and it's pretty unhealthy. But there is a solution. His name is Jesus. Actual forgiveness from the divine doctor who can look you in the eye whether you are a sympathetic character who has done wrong or you're an unsympathetic jerk who knows their wrongs deep in the heart, Christ can heal you back to God with actual forgiveness. I put it to you, we cannot remove guilt by trying better, by imagining we're good through and through, by just trying to self-help our way through it. We can't remove guilt by mob-shaming others, by looking down on others to make ourselves feel a little bit better. nuh And we can't even remove our own personal guilt by just telling ourselves we're a victim, not in any sense a perpetrator. Guilt will persist. Because the fact is, we hardly live up to our own standards, let alone the Almighty's. The only solution is actual forgiveness from an actual God who loves you, who entered into the world in Jesus, who lived the life none of us could live, that perfect life none of us could live. And then he gave that life on our behalf, taking into himself our guilt, our punishment, so we could be actually forgiven so we can wake up in the morning and say, thank you, God, for forgiveness. This is the ultimate good news and it will animate everything in your life when you get it. But friends, there has to be a moment of acceptance. There has to be a moment of acceptance. Last week, the paralyzed man had his moment of acceptance. It was faith, or the word just means trust. See, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. Trust. This week, Levi and his friends, they had their moment of acceptance where, where, where Jesus says, follow me, and they got up and followed him. For me, there was a moment sitting on the couch of this volunteer teacher, eating her hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones, and listening to her read to us the life account of Jesus, the Gospels, and I found myself thinking, I trust him, this one. I trust him. There was a particularly potent moment that I hinted at at the outset, when my friends and I were at a a drunken 16-year-old party late one night. Now, we weren't Christians. Don't think this is my habit or anything like that. But in those days, at the end of the party, one friend in particular was so blind drunk and had vomited all over himself, it was disgusting. And he said, can I come to your home? because my dad will kill me if he sees me in this state. And I said, no way you're coming to my home. And the other mate said, no way you're coming to our home. And then one of us had an idea, and I am just a little bit embarrassed even to tell you now. One of us said, hang on, doesn't the volunteer teacher live like 500 meters up the road? She'll have us. The fact that we thought that was plausible... Tells you something of the impression she had left in our lives. So we go up to her home. Nearly midnight. We knock on her door. She's finishing off a very posh dinner party. She looks at us. She looks at Daniel. She doesn't blink. She invites us in. Takes us past the dining room, past her friend's out to the back wing of the house. And she says, okay, um, let me get some pajamas from my own son. She she rushed up, she got some pajamas. She said, look, throw Daniel in the shower, uh, put him in pajamas, put him in uh, the back wing of the house in the bedroom there, and we'll worry about it in the mornings. That's exactly what we did. We showered him, we stuck him in jammies, we put him out in the back wing of the house, went home, came back the next morning. I guess it was about nine or 10 o'clock. We go into her house and there's Daniel at the kitchen table, not looking very well. And there is Glenda happily cooking bacon and eggs for us all. Oh man. When you have someone like that in your life, it's the easiest thing in the world to believe that the God of the Christians loves you despite your failings. We knew Glenda hated our drinking. She herself was a teetotaler, had never touched a drop of alcohol. And yet faced with this situation, she welcomed us, she loved us. Frankly, she conveyed Christ to us. And so when I say there was a moment where I found myself trusting Jesus, It's really because this woman exemplified Jesus, the friend of sinners. And even if you don't have a Christian like that in your life, we all have Jesus Christ himself and a narrative like the one we've looked at today, where Jesus welcomes the sinners, extends forgiveness to them. But there must be a moment where you accept this. You can't just circle around Christianity and expect to just catch it. I was speaking in the UK at the city of Bath and I was speaking at an event about the Christian faith and I met this woman immediately after the event. She came and she asked me a few questions and she was with Christian friend who had brought her along and it turns out this woman had been going to Christian events for like two years and had never really landed the plane as it were in fact that was her expression she said I've been circling Christianity I said oh yeah tell me she said oh well I've been going to church I've been looking in at a Bible study I've been coming to events like the one you just spoke at I love it I'm going yeah yeah right and what's the problem I don't, don't I don't have a problem Right, and yet you're not a Christian. No, 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 don't think so. I said, so hang on, do you not believe in God? No, no, I I believe in God. Right, Uh, do you uh, not believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again for you? And and, and she goes, yeah, I think I probably do believe that, yeah. Right, so do you have a good reason not to land the plane today? I said, and in a moment of beautiful honesty, she said, I have practical reasons, none of them good. How I wish I could say to you now, and in that moment, she began to trust in Jesus Christ. It wasn't really like that. For all I know, she is still. Circling the airport, never landing. But I wonder if there are some here or watching who know that really they've taken every step toward Christianity except the last one where you say, Christ, I trust you. I trust you. I had a guy come last night after the service. He, he, he came up to me and he said, that woman that you described in Bath, that's me. Can we talk further? And hopefully we're going to be talking further. But I want to ask you guys now, do you have a good reason not to land today? To come to the divine doctor, the Savior who gave himself for you, who will embrace and forgive you when you trust him with your life. And if you want it, I'm going to close by praying a prayer that I guess could be real for every Christian, but, but I'm particularly going to pray something that could be the words you if you're not sure you're a Christian, might pray in your own heart to God to make this your moment to trust Him. Please, please pray with me. Dear God, I know that you are the creator of all things, including my own life. You are Lord of all. But I have not treated you as you deserve. I've not treated other humans as they deserve. I am guilty. But thank you for sending Jesus into the world. Thank you for his perfect life. Thank you for his death and resurrection for me. Because of him, please forgive me now. Restore my soul back to you, my creator. I trust you with my life. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you did pray with me, can I just urge you to tell a Christian friend or family member that you did, or tell one of the pastors, the ministry team, or some other Christian you know, so that we can help you in the wonderful journey of learning how more deeply to trust Jesus Christ.